Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. On War. Military Virtue. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am your host, Yaga Malark. And our theme for today is military virtues uh, of the army and of the individual. Before we get into all that, though, uh, a couple of little housekeeping things. Uh, first off, by the time that you hear this, I'm going to be on my way to Beltane, which is a wonderful little event that occurs, and by little I mean one of the larger events in the East, that occurs in uh, Middle Tennessee, uh, right outside one of my old stomping grounds, Nashville, which is also Dirt Marion. Um, I've only been to this event one other time, and my experience was outstanding. I, you know, it's 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 one of my absolute favorite events. Um, it, it you know it helps it takes place over my birthday weekend. So yeah, it's 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 really cool. Uh, the last time that I went to a Beltane, I did get stung. That wasn't anybody's fault. I was taken very 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 well care of. Um, so if you are going to Beltane, know that the medical staff are par none, and should something happen, you will do just fine. Because I'm allergic to bees, and I did not bring an EpiPen, and I was just fine, many times over. Um, so, yeah, so I'm I'm looking forward to that. Not to getting stung by a bee necessarily, but to going and being a part of one of the first larger events that's taking place in the East. I missed Battle for the Ring, if you'll recall, because of, you know, some various COVID scare sort of thing. But as of right now, it seems to be pretty safe. So I'm going to risk it, risk the plague, and go down there and, and hopefully bring some some lovely news to y'all. Um, and so, you know, as such, kind of like we had discussed with Battle for the Ring, I was a little sad that I wasn't able to go and observe a lot of the, the drama that went on. There was quite a bit of drama for what I, from what I understand. And, you know, I, I understand for a lot of people, they find drama distasteful. But if you've studied power politics as long and as much as I have, you understand that drama is exactly what Clausewitz is talking about. It's the politics that drive the violence, that drives the war. You know, I, inter, interpersonal stuff is very important when we're dealing with the larger movements on the field. And, you know, some people are just out there to swing stick, and that's fine. Other people are out there to overthink things, and that's me, and we'll, we'll chat together, you and I. So I'm going to be doing interviews. I'm going to be uh, talking to people on the ground, hopefully tournament winners and other folks who are there and doing stuff, and maybe if we're just hanging out and trying to get some different perspectives and different opinions. And in doing so, there is probably going to be some, some personal opinion going on, some perspectives, potentially even some of that direct drama being injected into the show. I just kind of want to say ahead of time that uh, I am not a dramatic, I'm not, I'm not trying to make drama or perpetuate drama. I am merely a reporter of information. 
and uh, and, and the latter part of that episode as well is going to be uh, me kind of giving a play-by-play of what's going on. And not necessarily naming names or doing a, he said this, and then she said this, oh no, kind of, you know, back and forth thing. But explain it the way that we have been using power politics to explain field actions. You know, I didn't go through and read to you the various personal letters that were sent between, you know, Frederick the Great and, you know, Voltaire, or whatever the case may be. That, that wasn't important. The overall shaping of it, and perhaps how that thought process may have influenced, yeah, sure. But the exact details are not necessary. So I will not bore you with them, nor is this Bellegarth Confessions. So that's, that's not my job. Uh, and then, but right before I get into the, the more serious subject that perpet, like comes before our actual subject of the day, the military virtues, um, my, uh, my father actually, he knows that we're studying this right now because he, he listens to the show. And of course, the period of time that we're studying right now involves heavy use of the guillotine, that lovely curved bladed weapon or oblique bladed weapon that uh, was so popular in France at the particular time that we are studying, um, and this little piece of trivia was fascinating to me. Okay, so w- without looking it up, I know we live in the in a world of instantaneous technology, but let's just let's just su- suspend that for a moment. Without looking it up, just take a guess. When the last time the guillotine was used in France for like a, a state-sanctioned execution, I'll, I'll wait a little bit. Okay, you got a number? You got a year in your head? Was it? 1977? 1977. September the 10th, 1977 was the last time a guillotine was used to execute somebody in France. My word. It was 10 years before I was born. That's crazy. That's crazy to me <laughs> that it was still being in use at that time. I'm sorry, that just blew my mind, that little little trivia bit. So thank you for, for submitting that one. Uh, I, I hope that uh, everybody else got a kick out of that too. Uh, and then lastly, right now, um, from what, what we can see, what's occurring on the ground in the Ukraine, we're all learning lessons from this. You know, those of us who study military science on the professional or um, amateur level, we are learning from what's going on right now because the lessons that are being taught by Russia and by the Ukrainians uh, are, are, are really fascinating at the moment. For one thing, of course, we're, we're seeing what we normally saw, which is that cities present a huge obstacle. And as of this moment, Russia has taken a couple of key cities in the east, but has done so basically by leveling them. And you have to question the purpose of capturing land or capturing any sort of industrial center after having destroyed it. Uh, That doesn't seem to be a productive way to capture something, but, you know, what do I know? What do I know? I'm not Putin. Um, and of course they're grinding down there, but we're also seeing something that's very interesting, which is there's a, I forget the exact name of the system, but it's an anti-tank system and the Ukrainians have plenty of it. And up until this point, uh, ever since, you know, world about somewhere between world war one and two, the tank has been one of the main deciding factors, you know, desert storm. It was tanks that, uh, broke the line and, uh, you know, it, it just, it was an absolute rollover after that. Of course, we know about uh, the Blitzkrieg and the use of tanks in Europe in, in World War II and how devastating they could be, the kind of cav, the armored cav, our, our cataphract, if you will, of the uh, of the age. But just like with everything else, much like the, the era of the horse came to the end at Agincourt, it appears that the age of the tank may be coming to an end in the Ukraine. 
because these ta the tanks are being taken out by these extremely portable, extremely lightweight and, and versatile anti-tank weapons. And, it, and it, it, it's interesting. It's interesting. So everybody's studying this. And of course, we also uh, are studying the information warfare, which is being used in a level that we have not seen yet. We always knew it was possible, but like that is hugely important. It's something that all of our authors have talked about, but they could not even begin to fathom how important it would later become because of uh, the, the prevalence of technology right now and how much everybody relies on their phones uh, and, and various social media sites and news sources in order to inform themselves. Um, so it, you know, propaganda, it's huge. It's huge in this war and fo people are, are learning about that. And of course, there's the coordination that's involved here. Um, and, and like we had talked about before with the leveling of cities, fighting against an enemy who is willing to destroy infrastructure. You know, that's something that hasn't necessarily, when, when we're conquering, like the, the firebombing of Dresden was the destruction of infrastructure, but it wasn't to conquer it. It was to, um, you know, it was to disrupt the industrial center, but like the allies were not planning on, on taking that particular city, right? It was, it was more about damaging. In this particular thing, there's, there's long-term damaging of it. And we're able to kind of observe it more. America has done this. Again, the firebombing of Dresden, the firebombing of Tokyo. Um, you, of, of course, the dropping of the nuke. You know, there's been a lot of stuff that has destroyed infrastructure, but it's, it's something totally different to observe it from a third party, to be able to uh, analyze it in that particular time without being personally invested in it. So America's learning from this. The rest of the world is learning from this. You better believe insurgents are looking at this being like, okay, let's take notes because this is a good representation of how war is fought in this particular time. So again, our, our hearts go out to the people of the Ukraine. We hope that they find safety and solace soon and that their country stops being completely disrupted and destroyed by what this show and myself consider to be a bit of a megalomaniac. Uh, yeah, again, I, and I do want to iterate, I have nothing against the Russian people. I have nothing like that. We, we have a Russian restaurant here in town. That's absolutely delicious. And I, you know, there's no reason not to go because Russian people aren't Putin and they should not be held. Uh, of course, they're, again, they're not him. They're not able to be there and tell him what to do. Nobody can tell Putin what to do. Have you all ever seen a meeting with that man where he's speaking with even like the officials within his own country? He is scary. Like he is XKGB creepy scary. So yeah, it's a tough situation. It's a tough situation. But for those of us studying military science, I think that it also can yield some very useful um, lessons out of there as well. So let's shift away from that. Let's shift away and, and perhaps talk about something that is consistent across all ages of warfare, whether it be the age of the horse, age of the tank, or age of the anti-infantry weapon. But we're talking about military virtues of the army. Our episode today deals with the idea of military virtue. And we're going to be speaking about military virtue for the individual and for the army itself, because these are different things. They relate to one another. If you have, you know, military virtue in individuals, it makes military virtue in the overall army easier and vice versa. 
but we're going to look at them as separate concepts as well. If you recall from the previous episode, this was one of the chief moral forces with what was going on, and I, I, I definitely am still very confident in my decision to make it its own episode, because this is a complicated idea, and there's, there's a lot that kind of goes into it that I think is good to analyze for what we do. So let's define first, what is military virtue, right? And what are we looking at when we're dealing with military virtue? Well, it's, it's different than bravery or enthusiasm. You know, that, that national feeling that we had talked about last time, you know, the enthusiasm that comes with that, military virtue is very different. Bravery, for instance, you don't have to come into the military or into a military environment already brave. Being brave already helps. I mean, it does, you know, I you know people in the military who are, and, you know, they certainly have a leg up. But bravery can also be trained into a person through repetitious drill and development of expertise. A person can learn to be brave. Enthusiasm, however, is not required, at least for the, the military virtue that he's speaking of back in the way when. Remember, the, when this was being written, you know, during the time period that we're studying, the late 1790s and the early 1800s, they, this was a conscription-based army. Most of the people in it did not want to be there. They would have much rather been at home with their families or down at the pub or wherever else, but just not where they are. So enthusiasm with the system that they had developed wasn't required. For what we do, enthusiasm helps. Wanting to be there being motivated, especially since what we do is so individually based, I would say that enthusiasm is required for physical wargaming. But discipline is more important. If, you're, if we can't be enthusiastic, discipline is probably more important in that way. So let's then move into speaking about that a little bit. Military virtue in the individual. And remember again that the base knowledge here is being applied to those conscription armies that Clausewitz is talking about. And we're going to be kind of changing it to, to fit what we do, being, you know, volunteer-oriented, non-conscription hobbyists. So let's talk about this. The spirit and nature for the business is very much a part of this military virtue. Some people are just better at it than others. Some people just seem to be born to it, whether... It be a combination of athletic factors or a certain state of mind. Again, this is this is part of it, and this can be taught as well. Having a spirit and a nature for the business, being well formed to it, to the military life, to the military standards. This is important for an individual to have military virtue. So for us, it's very much the same, uh, especially for physical war gamers. Uh, we have to have a spirit and nature for it. You have to want to be there. We have to have our spirit in the moment. And this is something that we can learn to do if we don't have it to begin with. The next one is assimilation into the system. And remember with the time period that we're speaking of, that conventional smoothbore musket style, this was very important. This assimilation into the system, knowing how to march and when to march and what bugle things meant what and being exceptionally disciplined in this way, that assimilation at the time was critical. But it is also critical at other times in different ways, because every system is going to be slightly different. When we're dealing with a professional military, 
a more elite style military, which is what a lot of the military forces tend to be these days. It's more toward the elite forces. Well, then we're dealing with that sort of system. And assimilating into that system means a greater freedom of movement, but a greater responsibility to achieve mission objectives without support. Or, if there is support, in a limited fashion. So having the spirit and the nature to be able to accomplish those things is, I mean, just, it was ne it's necessary to do it. But it's different based on, on every war. And every unit. So let's, let's talk about it within our ways. Every unit is going to be slightly different. Every unit is going to require different things of its people, different states of mind, different styles of fight, even a different manner of dress. All of these di different things constitute a system. And if a person is ill-suited to whatever system they've become a part of, then it takes away from the military virtue of that individual. Along with this comes a complete understanding of one's post and responsibilities. What are we supposed to be doing? When are we supposed to be doing it? On the field, this assigns itself in what kind of role that we fill. So if we are a shieldman or, or somebody who's supposed to work in the line, then understanding our responsibilities and what, what it means to be in the line is important. You know, as, as folks who work in the line, especially if you're using a shield, you understand that killing the opponent Putting out strikes is secondary in most cases. The more important thing is protecting pole arms so that your pole arms can wreak havoc upon theirs, thus tilting the uh, balance of the battle. Because whoever's got that long reach does have certain advantages for sure. But that comes with the understanding that a lot of new people being in the line, they're still disorganized. They're still fighting as an individual, still striking out and potentially creating a hole in their own line by not understanding their responsibility. So this is true everywhere, even with flankers. Flankers, their responsibility is to go into the back line and cause as much havoc as possible, hopefully get some, some kills along the way. And there are good ways to be flankers and there's a bad way to be flanker. And knowing the difference there is, is knowing the difference between your responsibility. A good flanker is light on their feet doesn't overcommit in any general direction and is because that improves the level of harassment that you're capable of. You know, if we're going into it and we go in and, and yeah, we cause a little bit of harassment, but we just dive right into a line and get killed very quickly. The disruption might help somewhere else, but more than likely it's going to cause just a small little blip. And then we are one more body that was wasted for that particular effort how much more effective it is to just stay out of range and harass the back line for long periods of time in different areas. That is more disruptive. You see somebody who's back there and you know they're dangerous and people keep calling out, so-and-so's in the back, so-and-so's in the back. The rest of the force becomes more and more nervous because that person is suddenly everywhere. Good flankers. Good flankers. And to really come into these things, when we really want to come into understanding and fulfilling these responsibilities, it is important for us to exercise to gain confidence and expertise. And this doesn't just mean exercising our bodies, keep making sure that we're in shape, but it also means exercising our expertise with our weapon, making sure that our technique is up to form, that our footwork is up to form, that we are continually improving our style. You know, if you're working with a, a firearm, you know, it's a matter of cleaning the weapon, 
taking it apart, putting it back together, constant drills with it, constant uh, work at the range. If we're doing our stuff with, with our other weapons, you're, again, constant forms, workouts, kind of tilt, like uh, framed within that particular goal of, you know, that activities that are kind of put toward that goal. This is how we gain the expertise. And with expertise comes confidence, which contributes to our, our virtue, our military virtue. And to do all of this is to fill, fulfill one's role in the military machine. And this isn't just talking about the conventional army that, that we're speaking of in the, in the history lecture, but more, again, where our purpose is, what, what our role is, what do we do? We all fall in niche. You know, we all fall into some sort of uh, role for our team, even if it wasn't what was intended. Even in something that seems very similar. There's always different roles, different cues by people. And when we are able to exercise these different elements, we're able to actually fulfill our purpose within the overall military machine. And those who do, those who are able to really get this down, they will see themselves as members of a special guild. It really brings people together when military virtue is prominent between individuals. So this is how a person cultivates military virtue within themselves, according to Clausewitz. And a lot of that, I think, is applicable. And some of it also, you know, we're not a part of a conventional army from the late 1700s. So some of it, in its literal sense, is not. But let's talk about the overall force. Let's talk about military virtue of the army. And for us, let us use something like a unit, which I think, because a, a, a realm is usually too broad in terms of loyalty. I mean, like, Stygia fights pretty well together, but that's because we're so isolated that we know exactly how everybody else fights. Usually, we're the best at fighting with our team because that's who we're practicing with uh, more, more frequently. So let's talk about the army as though it was the unit. Our first thing that needs to be maintained is to preserve formation while under heavy fire. Keeping our cool while with while the danger is pressing in upon us and we're we're not going to be experiencing artillery fire <laughs> in what we do i mean i may, i guess there's some games where you might have to deal with catapults or something along those lines but if you're doing uh Bellegarth, we're not going to have to deal with anything resembling artillery we do have javelins we do have arrows so coming in on, on another force, having those projectiles coming and not breaking formation, not becoming freaked out and having one side go slower, that is a huge part of the military virtue. Not being intimidated by that. And a part of that is never being shaken by imaginary fears. We're not getting inside our own heads with what is happening here. It's a matter of discipline. It's a matter of focus and not spreading rumors within about, about other things. One of the best systems that I've seen is people getting together and being like, okay, I have trouble fighting this person. Any tips, tricks, ideas? And as people kind of come together, they're able to form a better idea, a better technique of fighting said people or fighting said unit or whatever the case may be. And does the exact opposite of, of having these imaginary fears. Which is nice, which is the idea. But because if the imaginary fears come in, even, even if the enemy hasn't done anything, we can be defeated by our own mind. And so military virtue in the army is if it is cohesive enough in thought to not be shaken by the threat, the mere threat of something. 
A huge portion of military virtue in the army as well is to dispute ground, even when falling backwards. Like if, if we're withdrawing from combat and it's a full-fledged run and it's like basically a retreat or a rout, that is, there's no military virtue there. The, the force itself is effectively, uh, has effectively broken apart. All discipline is broken down and it, it, it barely resembles an army anymore let alone, you know, something that can actually accomplish anything. But disputing ground not only keeps the force together, but it also keeps the opponent from moving as quickly, which also gives us the chance to, to kind of reform for a counterattack, which is the idea. Simply running away doesn't always... Uh, now, there are times when that has to happen, where, when we are against a vastly superior force, whether that be in numbers or in just pure skill, and one has to uh, do a rapid reposition. Let's just call it that, <laughs> a rapid reposition. Uh, but ideally, ideally, we dispute ground as we fall back uh, in order to potentially get some weaknesses at our opponent so we can strike back and get them on the back foot. <clears throat> on the back foot. The, the next point that he is makes is to never lose sense of obedience. Now, obedience in what we're doing is very different than at the time of what they're doing. Because desertion, of course, at the historical point when this was being written was met with a uh, shot to the head. You know, it was a very, very different situation than what we're dealing with. And so obedience was a, a totally different concept. For us, though, the obedience, again, I think is to that system that we were talking about. Never losing that sense of obedience to the system that we are assimilating into. So if that's a system of a, a smaller unit that consists of very fast wolf pack, then that's an obedience to that. That's, that's keeping with the strength of the unit. Obedience to the policy, to the doctrine, if you will. And that it just helps. When we do that, we maintain the military virtue because then other folks know what to expect from us and we know kind of what comes next. There's not a whole lot of guesswork. You know, we, we have this particular policy, we have this particular doctrine for encountering these situations and it becomes second nature. One doesn't need to think necessarily about what they are doing or how they're doing it because it has been rehearsed so many times and because they have been obedient to the doctrine. And I know a lot of people, that word chafes at them. My, my own unit mates, if they're listening to this right now, the word obedience <laughs> is typically an anathema to them. But we do it too. We do it too. It's just to a lesser degree. And so the, a, a military virtue of the army is definitely everybody being obedient to one central purpose or one central uh, policy, technique for doing things. To have this sense of obedience, one has to have respect for the system though. And, and for the leaders who propagate it. So respect and confidence in said system and in the leaders is paramount. It, it, that is That can only do good things for the military virtue of an army. Now, conversely, the leaders have to be, and the doctrine needs to be worthy of this respect and confidence. Because if the doctrine doesn't work, or if the leaders are ineffective for some reason, then that respect, that confidence goes away. And that isn't necessarily something that is indicative of the, like the core of the army, but that is definitely influenced by those at the top. I've seen 
fantastic units go from being strong, meaningful presences to dwindling very quickly and becoming a shadow of their former selves just because of a change in leadership. A change in leadership to somebody who was not effective, somebody who did not have the confidence and the respect of the people, other people within that unit. And it's crazy how quickly that changes everything. So making sure that we do have respect for our leaders and that our leaders are respect worthy. Very important to maintaining that military virtue of an army. Next on the list is the, uh, the concept of being resistant to the depressing effects of defeat. We've all been there. Our blood is up. We really want the win for whatever reason. Either we're trying to impress somebody or it's for banner points or whatever the case may be. There is a reason that we want to win. Our heart, our emotions are set on winning. And many times we won't because it just happens that way. And when we don't, that can put us on tilt. That can put us as an individual on, on to some, some, place, the, some place of the mind that is not conducive to victory in the future. And this also happens with a larger force too. I've definitely seen it where units begin to beat themselves after a while. You'll have some very close matches and then one side will definitely start to gain a significant advantage. And it's partially because the side that maybe has lost a little bit more begins to lose faith in itself, begins to lose faith in its ability to perform and its ability to achieve victory at all because it is suddenly getting depressed. The defeat has been uh, demoralizing. And so if, you, if we have an army, if we have a group that is immune or resistant to these effects, to this the depressing effect of defeat, oh my goodness. Oh my word, that's, that's outstanding. Whether it's a fanatical belief in a leader or whether it's just the sheer discipline of the people within that, that organization, that's huge. Even within an individual. I think we all get the blues after we, we lose a game, after we don't get a promotion, whatever the case may be. It is easy for us to experience the depressing effects of a huge blow to our morale like that. But if we're resistant to it, well, that can only lead to good things. And the same idea, being resistant to privation and fatigue is huge for the military virtue of an army. One of the things that the training does, any sort of military training, is it gets you out of your comfort zone. It gets you out of air-conditioned environments and soft beds and puts you into a place of discomfort. It puts you into a place of hunger. puts you into a place of overworking your body, uh, overworking your mind, to such a place that you're having to function from a place of fatigue. There's a reason that training is that severe. There's a reason that training is meant to push a person that far. And it's because if we are experienced in it, then when it actually happens in the field, it doesn't affect us as much. Remember when we were speaking about the war in Afghanistan and how much harder your average Afghan is going to be than your average American, simply because of the way they grew up. You know, most Americans, I would say 99% of Americans live in some degree of affluency compared to some place like Afghanistan, where you have a lot of folks that live rurally and they live so without the technological advancements and creature comforts that we enjoy here in the West. 
And so for us, it's a transition from comfort to a lack of comfort, like a severe lack of comfort. For them, it's just another day on the block because they are hugely conditioned against privation and fatigue. It doesn't affect them as much in their home environment there. And that lends a certain military virtue to the way that they operated. Because all of these toils, all of these different struggles, all of these different pains, they are a means to victory. And, and an army that can see that, an army that can see that the wounded and the hunger and the disease are all part of that, that climb toward victory, that is a huge part of the mindset. And it's the same thing when we're dealing with individuals, even, or when we're dealing with units. This idea that even defeats can be teaching moments. Even defeats can lead us to an overall victory. So if we can remember this, if we and our compatriots can remember this particular virtue, it, it absolutely helps. It absolutely helps. And all of these things contribute toward the military virtue of an army or an individual. So for the individual, of course, you have a spirit in nature for the business. You assimilate into the system. There's an understanding of one's post and responsibilities. We exercise to gain confidence and expertise. And we try to wholly fulfill our role in the military machine. That is the military virtue of an individual. The military virtue in the army, you know, preserving our formations in the face of danger, never being shaken, by our imaginary fears, never, you know, beating ourselves with our own minds, disputing ground, even when withdrawing from an area, uh, being obedient to our leaders, to our doctrine, whatever the case may be, uh, respecting and having confidence in our leaders and having them be worthy of that confidence and respect, being resistant to the depressing effects of defeat and to the de like really hindering effects of privation, you know, hunger, thirst, and fatigue and looking upon all of these toils as a means to the overall victory. This, this is virtue for both of these people and for it to really, really sink in. We have to be always reminded of our duties and our virtues. There's a reason that people have unit meetings and they get together and they put their heads together and they say, what is happening going forward? Where are we at? What policy changes are happening? What, like, what's, uh, is our unit aging? Does that affect the way that we recruit? Does that affect the way that we fight? But this has to be reminded. This has to be going over. Like if, if the, the units that don't do that, either they get too large to effectively do it, or they're just not very up on it, they start to drift apart. They start to become archaic very quickly because this is, this is very important. Being reminded of our duties, being reminded of our place. That is part of the part of achieving military virtue. So in a long explanation, that is what we're talking about when we're talking about military virtue. Do you see why I needed my own like episode for this one? And we're not done yet. He throws a little shade here, which which has me giggling. He said that, you know, soldiers may fight bravely without military virtue. You know, you, you can do just fine without it. Take, for instance, the Americans and the Vendeans. So the Vendeans were the, the counter-revolutionaries there in Western France. And the Americans, you know, the, the Brits had recently finished fighting the, us in the Seven Years' War. And we were just scrappy chaps, you know. Uh, you know, a rabble, an armed rabble in his mind. And, you know, they, they don't have any military virtue. You know, it's, it's they won. 
It's, it's very interesting to me because then I think 200 years from then, <laughs> how much, how much that has changed. How much that has changed. It's not really picking a fight with a dead guy, more just grinning at the dead guy and not necessarily knowing where we're going with all of this. In an overall sense, though, military virtue is for the parts of the army what genius of the commander is for the whole. Both together accomplish amazing things, but for the commander to really be effective, a genius of a commander to really be effective, the army has to have military virtue. And for an army to really be effective, its commander has to have military virtue. If both of them are working together, then success is, is much more possible, much more, it, it's more probable for sure. Because the commander guides the whole and this military virtue guides the parts. The commander can rely upon the military virtue of the army to be where it is and where it needs. When we're talking about this conventional, remember, this was all heavily trained stuff. When they called, you know, call them right, they need to be call them right immediately. When they were doing some sort of like swinging motion, everybody had to be in on it. Like there was so much coordination that was necessary here. And being able to achieve that, being able to, to kind of get that out of your force was very important. Just as important as being a, a brilliant commander. Think of Frederick, Frederick the Great. He inherited the army that was built by his father. It was amazing, and he was able to do really good things from it. Alexander, same thing. Alexander did not have to build up his army, his Macedonian army. His father, Philip, had already done that. Alexander just took his brilliance and this amazing army and went and did great things with it. So both of these together, outstanding. Outstanding. Some of these things come naturally. As we were talking about before, some people grow up hard. Some people grow up in harder conditions, in harsher environments, and sometimes we have cultures that are just more warlike in general. Especially at this time, you know, just war, like just some cultures that are more violent, some cultures that are more, they have more of a focus on martial training or whatever the case may be. And, and these breed a natural quality of bravery. And we had talked about that isn't necessarily a military virtue in of itself because it can be trained, but having that be a natural part of a person's, you know, mental makeup, that's outstanding. Aptitude, you know, a person who has grown up handling whatever weapons, you know, here, here in Montana, you know, 53% of the people who live here possess firearms. They grew up hunting. They grew up cleaning and, and just kind of doing target practice with these firearms. And so the aptitude of somebody like myself, like I got into the military and I just, I, I thought everybody knew how to do these things. Field stripping a rifle, easy, you know, do, doing the proper pull of, a, of the rifle to make sure that your bullet doesn't Go at a weird angle because you jerked your rifle. Yeah, easy, easy. Because I had already been taught all that. I, they sat me next to these city folks who had never like really seen a rifle in person, let alone held one. And it was really interesting to see this. And so that's absolutely huge. Like the aptitude that comes just naturally from where a person comes from definitely influences the military virtue, just the natural military virtue that's possible. Endurance, same idea. Some people just come from harder environments and can just endure more to begin with. And enthusiasm. Warlike people are happy to be there. Think about the Vikings. There's a whole portion of their culture. Like, again, there was, there was a lot to the Norwegians. 
at the time to Viking culture that had nothing to do with violence. They were also incredible merchants and people of science. They developed the, 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 of course the name escapes me right now, but there's a blade that was like a synthesis of, um, Middle Eastern technology and the technology of Northern Europe that made this like almost godlike blade because of its qualities that most other metal weapons did not have at the time. So they were not stupid, but they were a warlike people. And they were enthusiastic to be there, wanted to be there. It was a part of the culture. The Sioux here in America, another uh, folks who were, who were very into it. It was a part of their culture and they were enthusiastic when it came to warfare. They were feared among the other tribes and amongst the United States army when it was first encountering because they were, they were very much enthusiastic about the, <laughs> the whole affair. Now, when we're talking about military virtue, though, it's a, it's a quality of a standing conventional army for the most part. So as you start to move away from really rigid, really solid tactics, military virtue becomes less and less and less important, at least in its literal terms here. And it's very good against other conventional forces. If you have, you know, two conventional forces, the military virtue is really important. But if you don't, if there's some sort of uh, imbalance it's very much less effective against insurrection, what we're talking about here. That calls for different sorts of tactics, which we have discussed before and we will very likely discuss again. The spirit that we had talked about, though, when we talked about a spirit and a nature for the business, let's go back to that real fast. The spirit comes from a couple of, a couple of different places. It can come from victory, for sure. Like if we've been having a string of victories or if we scored one really good victory, yeah, suddenly the spirit is upon us. You know, this, this spirit that in, inspires us to achieve a higher military virtue or dire or intense circumstances can also provoke it. Even brave people can become, or even uh, cowards can become brave if they know that that's the only way out. If pressed hard enough, just about anybody can, can get to that level of spirit. So military virtue, as we can kind of tell, you know, the Americans were putting together the Continental Army, but Clausewitz said that it didn't have military virtue. The Vendeans had put together the Catholic and Royal Army, but that didn't have military virtue. Just because an army is called an army does not mean that it has military virtue. And if it is lacking in military virtue, all operations have to be simplified. The level of, of cooperation, the level of complexity that is required for these larger and more uh, intricate tactics, that obviously isn't going to work if an army does not have military virtue. Something else is, is definitely called for. So very much simplifying our tactics. If we know that our force does not have military virtue, which the vast majority of the units of the folks that we're speaking about right now don't. I know my unit does not have military virtue. Not in this way. My, my army in 40K does, for sure. All sorts of virtue there. There's a reason that we haven't discussed 40K very much in this episode, because that's all assumed right here. That each of these folks that you've got on the field has military virtue, that the army itself has military virtue. That's assumed. You don't have to deal with a lot of the other morale factors here. And once again, I just want to drill home the, the, the point that great success comes from combining genius and military virtue. So if we can promote military virtue within ourselves, at least to the extent that is required by our system, 
and we have somebody who possesses the genius for the situation, then, well, it's, it's going to be a pretty good time. But with us today to discuss some of these ideas, I, I, I just want to introduce the next guest. And to do so, I had to get something. I had to write down a bunch of stuff because um, when he comes into a room, he's, he is famous enough within the sport that there's like a running joke. And I mean, I, I don't know if it started off as a joke, but it's one of these things, like when he comes near an area, squires are kind of required to start shouting out his titles. And I just wanted to, to iterate, he did not give himself these titles. They have been given to him by other people. And it's numerous. Here, let, 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 me, let me share this with you as an introduction to our guest here. <clears throat> Introducing. The great Sir Kyrian Hawkshroud, patron saint of Belagarth, once and future president, knight of Andor, legendary straight, member of Wolfguard, captain of the Order of the Axe in Valdemar, knight of Numenor, knight of Wolfpack, commander of Clan Hydra and Vicomte of the West, honorary EBF, sire of Sir Melanin the Exemplar, Professor Errant, mayor of a little town up the coast, he of the fast draw and long arrow, summoner of peacocks, Meshuggah bringer. Slayer of dragons, pitiless to ogres, destroyer of griffins and giants, no friend to gargoyles, nice to the needy, sportsman, poet, swordsman, statesman, nifty dancer, sailor of the ocean, surveyor of valleys and mountains, and all around great guy, I present Sir Kyrian. to discuss with me these themes of military virtue and how they apply to wargaming is a a myth, a man, a legend, Sir Kyrian. Sir, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I very much appreciate um, being invited to speak on your show. Well, we are honored to have you, sir. Um, our, our listeners, though, may not be overly familiar with who you are, depending on what game they play. So uh, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Okay. Uh, my name is Ian, and um, in Belagarth and Dagger and Ampgard, I do go by uh, Kyrian. And I've been doing uh, some form of foam fighting and also SCA for over 30 years at this point. Um, just kind of done a little bit of everything and in a, a few different places. Uh, and as far as my wargaming experience, I am I am mainly a PC gamer, and by far my favorite uh, genre of game is RTS. All flavors, all kinds, anything. I just I love the uh, whole idea of it, and probably my favorite RTS, at least so far right now, is uh, the Dawn of War series, which is the uh, 40k um based um rts yeah <laughs> and uh also um i was in the army i served both as an enlisted person for three years on active duty then i spent a year in the national guard and then i spent four years on active duty as an officer and i think that's about all of it <laughs> right now well, it, it sounds to me like you have about all the bases covered. You've done the physical aspect, you've done the intellectual aspect on the computer, and then you actually have real uh, in-the-field experience as an actual military personnel person. 
Yeah, I guess so. When you put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, I, I think that you're uh, perfectly suited then to, to talk about military virtue with us. And, and kind of because there's a lot of themes here when Clausewitz is talking about it that don't really apply to Bell. For instance, when he talks about that rigid obedience uh, to one's superior, I mean, you've been around a little bit longer than I have. Do Bellagrim obey? I think a part of that, especially when you talk about um, units in Belgarth, part of the biggest thing of that is you're finding people who who share common interests or common ways to fight, etc. Um, I can think of a couple units right off the bat where you know that kind of discipline is kind of expected, where you know you know this going into it that if you are joining this unit. If, if someone who is high, higher ranking than you in the unit, you listen to what they say. Mm -hmm. um, and I've seen others where it's a lot less formal that way. It's kind of, you know, um, one concept you talk about as far as leadership is, you know, kind of your natural leaders. There are people there who just, you know, just by virtue of who they are, you, you, you get that sense of charisma and, um, personality that and you know especially when they show that they know what they're talking about sure. you just kind of follow them and you trust that they're going to make the, the good decisions and that's that's well, kind that, of across the board <laughs> no, I, and i mean that makes a lot of sense and that is one of the virtues they talk about is respecting one's leaders and how much better is it to to do that naturally than to have that beaten into you, to actually see a leader and say, I want to follow this person, rather than a drill sergeant saying, hey, guess what? Yeah, and I mean, over time, I've, I've had a chance to really uh, kind of look at leadership in that respect. And, you know, there's the authoritative aspect of it that I am the leader because of, by virtue of my rank or my, and or my position, that you will listen to me because of that as opposed to um, leading by influence of, you know, conveying to people that you're going to treat them like human beings, you're going to listen to them, and they trust that the decisions and the things that you're saying and doing make sense. And, you know, in my mind, the, the most amazing leaders that I've encountered in my life are the ones, especially in the military environment, are the ones who, who understand, you know, the, the responsibilities of leading by influence just as much as they understand, you know, the fact that they're in a leadership position and they are obligated to be a leader. Sure. If that makes sense. Oh, it does. It does. And, and I think kind of along the same vein, it helps to have a leader who kind of knows what they're, what they're ruling over. I mean, when I was in the military, there were folks who were a part of the transportation corps who had done it before. Like some of our officers had started off as uh, enlisted folks or NCOs, and so they knew everything about it. So when they when they became an LT or a captain, they were able to effectively lead because they knew what they were asking of us. Whereas you know, occasionally you'd have somebody in that position who had never done the work before, and you know, it, it always would grate at, at us enlisted folks. <laughs> yes, and I mean. You know, you think about it, um, my, my thought on it is that leadership is a, a learned skill. And to get better at it, like any other skill in life, you just got to keep practicing it. 
you know, that everything in life is hard until it's not. <laughs> right. Well, it's, it's also a matter of taking it seriously. You know, there's, there's folks who get into it and they're like, well, I have this rank and it means something for my ego. And then there's folks who say, okay, I have this rank and that means that I have certain responsibilities. It means that I have certain duties that I need to fulfill in order for this rank to mean something, you know? Yes. Absolutely. And I think that's I think that's in the same all over the place for like in the actual military for sure because it's kind of life and death in in a very real sense. But but also in this in the nerd sports that we do, uh, needing to know that our our leaders are one of us and that they're not because I've been a part of units where they we had people in power who just wanted to be in power and. It was not conducive to a to a very effective field environment. Not not as nearly as much as you know when when you really respect folks and when you know that, uh, like we like we say, they're gonna <laughs> fulfill the post faithfully. Yeah. So in terms of that, in terms of the 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 leadership and um, the effectiveness of various styles, you uh, what's your unit? What uh, who who are you a part of? I am a part of uh, Clan of the Hydra. Clan of the Hydra. So when it comes to leadership and uh, and kind of how that works within Clan of the Hydra, what's y'all's style? I would say it's uh, leading by consensus. Hmm. We uh, we have an or we have a group of leaders, and we are constantly talking about things, and we are collectively deciding, you know, what is our course of action, and or whatever you know, what are the goals that we're setting for ourselves? What are the things that we want to try to accomplish as a as a unit hmm. so and then from there because we we are fragmented physically in that you know we have a group here in Southern California but the majority of the people are in Wisconsin Illinois um, I think the, those are the major ones at the moment but yep. the, the having that um, having that division means that you know we don't always get to see each other. And that's that's something that, you know, units that get to see each other every week, I am so envious of oh, being sure. able to interact with each other because that's, that's huge. And, you know, it's uh, one of the things I've definitely noticed is that even though we, have, we spend all this time on the field, we may spend time at events, it's the time that we invest in each other outside of that that really adds to kind of the the unit bonding just building the friendships building your you know the group of people that getting to really know all the people around you and um i can't uh i can't go on gush enough about how just how that makes uh just makes the whole experience just that much uh better for everybody. Well, legitimate, legitimate bond for certain. Because I mean, when Clausewitz was writing in the, you know, we're talking about the, you know, the times of the wars of the coalition, Napoleonic wars. We're talking about conscription. You know, people were there whether they wanted to be or not. Uh, so enthusiasm, enjoying themselves, wasn't really important at the time. But for what we do, it is, and especially for a group to really vibe, to really gel together and work well on the field. I agree with you. I, th I think that that personal bonding that, that, that takes place is very important. I agree 100%. Um, and I mean, to your point, what we do is voluntary. So, you know, I think the you have to approach that. And it's something, 
you know, I've, I've read a lot about um, how the U.S. Army had to transition uh, between Vietnam and going into, you know, in the years leading up to Desert Storm, where mm -hmm. we had to change from a, cons a conscription-based army to an all-volunteer force. And a the kind of thing, army. Exactly. And just the, the overall um, structural and just organizational changes that had to happen in order to make that work. Because, I mean, to your point, if you have conscripts, your approach to them is going to be very, very different if, than if you have people who want to be there. Right. And, and you know, in, in certain wars, it may have worked better than others. You know, if, if people were being conscripted into a war that they felt heavily about, so maybe the American Civil War, where political tensions were high, or even World War One or World War Two, where folks felt a lot more of like a patriotic calling to, to go into those. But when you start dealing with like Korea and Vietnam, where the um, approach is kind of hazy, the reasons were there is kind of hazy, but more importantly, the public support is far less than it was in the world wars. Well, then you're dealing with a very different situation and conscripts that don't want to be like, really don't want to be there. And that's, that's a bad time in the military. Oh yeah. And you know, um, that does bring up a good point, just kind of in general about leadership and units and that kind of bonding is the fact that what we do is not, doesn't take place in a vacuum. What we see as the kind of units that we develop in Bellegarde, the, the, the groups that we want to participate with are directly influenced by what's going on in the world around us. Mm -hmm. And some of the things that, you know, we thought, ah, ha, ha, that's, that's cool. And then now we look, it's like, you know, what they're doing is kind of hazing. Yep. You know, kind of the, the way that our society and the, and the way our community perceives each other and perceives the kinds of things that we do as units, um, it, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Sure. And I mean, that's another thing that we go over a lot in these various books, too, is how, how much the off-field stuff really it influences what's going on the field, either power politics, changes in society, changes in technology, things that aren't necessarily on the field specifically that all feed into. I mean, again, you've been around a little bit longer than I have uh, doing this. I'm going on, I'm, I've been doing this for 20 years at this point. Um, and I, we've both seen how inner unit politics can absolutely shape what happens on the field. So-and-so <laughs> breaks up with so-and-so and suddenly you have like the Capulets and the Montagues yes. at each other, right? Drama. <laughs> but it's important. Like, I, I don't know. I used to hate drama. But then when I started to understand drama as like power politics and like actually influencing the way that combat takes place, it became far more interesting to me at that hmm. point. You know, I haven't thought of it that way, but you do have a really good point. And, and, and it, because again, when you look at it from these perspectives, like, I mean, Clausewitz says that uh, war is an extension of, of politics. It is politics by another means. Uh, and while we're not necessarily conquering land from one another or uh, imposing governmental societies or whatever the case may be, um, it, it does, does still matter. It does still matter. Um, and that definitely changes the approach too. Like some people they'll take to the field and, you know, if they're, if they're going on and they're enthusiastic, that of course influences fighting. If they've got the feel bads from some inner unit drama or, you know, between unit drama, that includes the feel bads as well. Definitely. I agree with you. It's, uh, for me personally, I try very, very, if there, if there's any kind of that, I, I 
don't take it on the field with me as much as I as much as I I try very hard not to. You know, I'm out there, I am um how can I put it? Not I'm I'm not incorporating emotionality I don't think that's the right word. I don't let my emotions dictate the way that I'm deciding how I'm going to fight as much as, you know, I'm not going to, you know, in a nutshell, I'm not going to let anger drive what I do. I'm not going to let sadness drive what I do. I go out there and I try to, you know, put aside all of that. And that's one of the things I love about fighting is that I can do that. Mm -hmm. I don't have to you know, make it emotional. And I know for some people that's not, you know, that doesn't work. You, um, for some, they're so involved and it's such an integral part of who they are. It's kind of hard for the, um, their emotions to not bleed over into that. Well, and you raise a really good point and, and something that, you know, Clausewitz talks about, which is making, like, basically buffing ourselves, buffing our morale when we go onto the field. And like you say, it doesn't matter if you were angry off-field or, or if you were sad off-field. When you step on there and you have a sword in your hand, then all of that stuff is gone and you focus on fighting. And and I've seen you fight. You all, you do it very well. Like, uh, I, I've never known what was going on off-field because you have been consistently a good fighter. Um, how do you do that? I know like you make it sound easier, like, well, I just leave it off field, but that's, that's something that's very challenging for a lot of us. Do you have any tricks or, or, or like methods that you use in order to do that? You know, this may sound kind of funny, but I think one of the biggest aspect of that is, um, more specifically when I go out with a bow, Hmm. um, mainly because how good you are with a bow is directly reflected on your state of mind. If your mind is chaotic and unfocused, you're, <laughs> you're not going to really do well in trying to hit something. You, ha- you have to align you know, your m- mind and your body to be able to, to accurately make shots. And uh, so kind of a, a backstory of that. Um, back when I was going through my uh, divorce, um, one of the things that I ended up doing is like after work, I'd go out to a, an archery range and shoot for an hour. Hmm. And, and it was just me, the bow, the arrows and the target. And that just being able to, you know, in order to, to hit accurately, you have to calm all the noise. At least that's how it, that's what I had to do. And mm-hmm. I can't go on enough about how that was such a healing process for me. And it I, I think it it if I did not have the prior experience of being able to understand how much of a calming um, function archery was for me, I don't know if I would have been as successful in that. So I, I think the like I said, the, the, the biggest thing for me that I found is that there are so many different things that have to align both mentally and physically when you're trying to take a shot. Obviously, it, that applies to all the other you know fighting styles as well. But right. in particular, I found that archery, you know, you got to calm the noise. <laughs> no, and, and I mean that's that is actually a really it, it, it again touches on something else, which is through your the catharsis that you were receiving through that. I also think that it sounds like you were disciplining yourself 
to be emotionally calm when uh, using that weapon on the field or when, uh, so that that's, so it's not so much having a trick when you enter the field and being like, okay, I'm going to recite this mnemonic sequence. And by doing so, I drop away all my stress. It sounds like discipline before, like repetitively before you even touch the field was one of the ways that you achieve that state of no mind focus. Yeah. Yeah. I, w I would say that's, that's a really uh, good way of describing it. Definitely. Cause I love it too. I, I know the, exactly the feeling you're talking about where it <laughs> you know, you might have turmoil in your head in the second that that lay on is called the only thing that exists in the world is you, your weapon and your opponent. And it is a beautiful sensation. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, it, there's something to be said about being able to apply that focus in, in that kind, because I mean, when you think about it, especially in the fights that we have, especially on the larger ones, there is nothing but chaos. Sure. <laughs> there's screaming, there's loud noises, you know, people running around, people going down, you know, in front of you, all, all this just um, stuff. And I think, you know, so something that just kind of leading to what you were talking about is that I've recognized that I can't control that. Right. What I can control is what I can control, which is me. So, you know, that whole, that the whole environment is, you know, it's, it's so much. Um, and I, I, I get that, especially when I look at new fighters and it, like, you know, they kind of stand around, they, they don't know what to, number one, they don't know what to look at. And two, everything is just overwhelming, like sure. absolute sensory, you know, overload. But over time, as you, um, you know, as you start to get more experience, just like everything else, the more you're exposed to it, the more you practice in that kind of environment, the more you start to learn what are the things you can pay attention, you have to pay attention to, and what are the things that um, kind of fall in the by the wayside. But you know, a lot of times they're still there; they're just not, you know, right at the front, the forefront of your. Um, what you're doing. Well, sure. And, and it also, I think, goes into understanding one's role into what they're doing on the battlefield. So if you're, you know, shooting and you've got a bow, uh, your role is to remain somewhat removed, observe the battlefield as a whole, and kind of, either, you know, call things out as you see them, whether or not people are coming around behind, uh, trying to maintain some sort of unit coherency, but really be looking for your shots. That's your role at that particular time. Uh, and of course there's everything else, but that's not really what you're doing. If you've got a shield and you're toward the center, then your role is to take up space, take up attention, make sure that you're, you know, a tank, you know, drawing aggro in that way. Uh, and like you say, new people may not know that, you know, they may have a big shield and be in the line, but not know how to use that effectively, not know how to really fulfill that role. And it seems like time that is really a time thing, time in grade, if you will. Yeah. No, that's, that's a good, a good analogy. I like that time in grade. And as you earn your time and grade, you start getting, you start going up in levels. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you just get better and better. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really weird. I work with uh, um, high schoolers. I do an after school program. And it is really interesting to watch them grow over the four years and, and go from being neophytes who don't really know how to hold a sword even to becoming, you know, fairly well-polished people. You know, you, you start teaching people at the, at the teenage level, they learn fast. I've noticed. 
<laughs> yeah, and it, it's outstanding. I mean, some of them, like bravery, for instance, we had talked about bravery in this episode and how it is something that can be trained or it can be innate. I've got a few kids in this current class that are just brave innately. Like there's this this small person, you know, probably a third of my size in every single dimension. And I stepped, I had my heater shield, I had my flail, and I stepped up to the line, <laughs> and they stepped up to me with their chest out, and I was like, I'm going to crush you, but I admire your spirit. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, a, that's an interesting point, too, is, you know, um, something that you see is, even when there's, uh, I'm sure you've seen this, you have one vet on one side, and you have like five or six not vets, and the minute the vet comes up, all five of them stop. Or right. uh, there's an archer there. The archer draws back and all five of them stop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's physically impossible for someone with a bow and one arrow to shoot all five people. And, you know, I think that's that's a very interesting thing about, you know, our, our game in, in terms of, you know, kind of the mentality and perspective that people have is that they... They're not necessarily out there to to win, but they mm-hmm. don't want to lose. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> no, I think part of it that plays into it is, you know, we, we've been kind of conditioned in a lot of ways. People who haven't received actual military training, we've been conditioned by movies and that sort of thing to have what, what, what I kind of refer to as the henchman complex. And if you're watching like an old school uh, kung fu movie, You know, the hero comes into a room, there's like 15 dudes there, and they all start like making cool poses, and then they all come at him one at a time. Yep. They take turns. He's like, yeah, but you know, Bruce Lee is cutting them down one at a time, and it's like, y'all, if you just rushed him, yeah, he might take out one or two of you, but you know, there's only one dude there. Yep. It's, and uh, it's, it's odd, just like to your point of how often you see that um with newer fighters vets that's generally not an issue anymore they figured out how to work around that part (laughs) they have no compunctions about uh you know rushing uh, a single fighter or several of them at once because that's the way you do it yeah especially like if you and i are rolling up on a side and like there's one other vet on the other side i'm not really gonna care because like i've got covering fire so i'm i'm going in and I think, you know, one of us is taking them out. That's that's just where I'm at on that. Yep. <laughs> Definitely. Which is awesome. <laughs> but again, that can be trained. That bravery doesn't have to be innate. How many of those newer fighters have you seen go from being kind of timid to being to being fierce? Like you say, like vets who really have no fear in the face of those things. Too many to count. <laughs> yeah. It is, uh, you know, it kind of a rite of passage for... You know, transitioning from being a new fighter to to being a, a veteran is get mm-hmm. is it's that and being able to throw combinations. <laughs> right, and and that's of course the the actual expertise and and training of the individual, which is also a virtue. It's a military virtue to make sure that you're competent and in, in what you're doing. Um, and like you like you were saying probably way back before at this point um like the clan of the hydra what what works as a military virtue for y'all is different than for other folks because you know assimilating into that system it sounds like you need to be able to work as an individual and as a member of a team to be able to bring together a lot of different styles 
yes. and kind of make them work together in not in not a singular doctrine, but like overlapping points of efficiency, right? Yeah. No, I really like how you articulated that. Whereas like if you're dealing with other units, like I mean the, the Brotherhood of the Falcon comes to mind. Very regimented, very organized in the way that they approach the field. Like it doesn't really matter what area you come from, the Brotherhood's gonna fight in a very similar fashion. Um, and that's, that's part of their system. And so if a person isn't in line with that, if they can't assimilate into what the brotherhood are doing, why they're going to struggle just as much as somebody who is uh, a very solid thinker would within something like the, the clan of the Hydra. Yep. And, um, it's something that I've given a lot of thought about is the fact that in a leader in that kind of, uh, structure and framework, it's not about, um, well, first off it's, um, encouraging everyone to identify the specific roles on the field that they're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. Some people love to be on the line. So, I mean, we can break it down right there. Some people love to be on the line. Some people don't want to go anywhere near the line. All they want to do is <laughs> flank. Right, right, right. So, you know, um, that's the first part is having people recognize what it is they're good at and what they really enjoy doing on the field. Then as a leader, it's the leader's responsibility to figure out how best to employ people in those roles. So for example, if I were, um, if I were in charge on the field, I would not want to put a flanker on the line because right. it's, that's de defeating a lot of purposes and they, you know, they may, and Number one, they may not necessarily have too much experience on the line. And two, they probably don't want to be there to begin with. So it's it's not about making people conform to a specific role as it's trying to problem solve how to make the disparate um, roles into something coherent and cohesive. And that, that and to takes... me, that's... <laughs> I, I love that. That's, that's, that's the, you know, the problem solving at, uh, aspect of warfare. You're solving problems. Right. Now, granted there's, there's consequences, but <laughs> yes. Right, absolutely. And, and like you say, there's, uh, there, it takes a certain quality of commander, a certain quality of mind to be able to say, okay, we've got all these different ideas, all these different influences, and to bring all that together. Because there is, it's it's all virtuous in, in the way of what we're talking about. Like, folks who are coming in from the different areas, I've, I've fought some of y'all. Y'all know what you're doing, even if there's different styles. And so to be able to bring that together, and not just work together, be able to work under a single mind, that's... Well, that's genius right there. I don't care who you are. That's that's genius. And it's fun as hell to do. <laughs> I believe that. I believe that. Oh, well, sir, it looks as though we are actually out of time. But I, the only reason I know that is because I looked down at the timer. We could have kept going for a while and I would not have noticed. <laughs> but I just wanted to say thank you so much again for coming on the show. Really, it has been an honor. And thank you so much for inviting me. And I hope we'll be able to uh, do some more of these. Yes. Oh, yes. I, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. If you're down to come back on the show, we are absolutely well, uh, stoked to have you back on. Okay. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again, sir. And for the rest of us, we are going to move on to the Battle of Hunshot.
after all the to-do of last episode, we come to the Battle of Honshut. And uh, this is going to be a fairly pivotal point and kind of demonstrate how the war is going to be fought moving forward, at least until the point when Napoleon takes over. Everything we've done, everything that happened in the last episode, of course, was the conditioning, the combat conditioning, or the, I guess the conditioning of combat, in order to bring us what we have today. So uh, this uh, took place between the 6th and the 8th of September in 1793. Our players were the French Republic, represented by Houchard and Jourdan, against the Allies, British, Hanover, Dutch, German mercenaries. And they are uh, represented by the Duke of York, Freytag, and Waldmoden. Now we're dealing with a force that is roughly twice the size of the other. The French Republican army was about twice the size of the Allied army. But all of this was stretched out upon the 18-mile front, which I think we had talked about before. And so this was the, the cordon that Freytag had set up, set up this uh, technique that he had used so effectively so many times before uh, was, was the way that he had done uh, right here. Like I said, though, that created a massive front, and an 18-mile front is a hard thing to imagine for any commander. And most commanders that I'm even thinking of would be ones in the modern age who have, you know, communication devices, satellite phones, and the like that can keep them coordinated. How much more confusing it would have been in a time of drums and flags and bugles trying to, and, and, and horse messengers moving back and forth, trying to figure out where everybody is and where the generals have moved to as the front is shifting. And oh my goodness, this is an impossible task. So the, but the, but the cordon, you know, it was there about 18 miles, uh, worth of it in fighting. And that's, that's where our action is going to take place. Another condition of combat that we hadn't mentioned last time, but that certainly has a huge play here, in my opinion, is the fact that uh, just a few days before this, Houchard had um, received news that Custine, which had been the dude he was serving under, he was the deputy of Custine, had been executed in Paris for things that, that he had done in this particular office. And so Houchard is already sweating. He's, he knows he, he didn't want this command to begin with, and now that he's there, he's very worried about, you know, his life and <laughs> pres preserving said life. It doesn't make it any better that there are representatives from, from the Republic there, like political representatives who are kind of pushing him and manipulating him in ways because, you know, he's, he's weak-willed, but I don't mean that as a super character flaw. It's just kind of the position he's been placed in. I, I think anybody would crack under underneath that. Maybe I'm wrong, but uh, yeah, these these generals were placed in pretty impossible situations uh, from the French Republic. He uh, he follows through anyways. He he gets her done, and at daybreak on the sixth of September, thirty thousand Republicans overwhelm the cordon at eight points along the line. If you remember from last episode, we were talking about a cordon being very effective if there is like one or two points of contact, because then other forces like reserve forces behind the cordon can move and react accordingly to reinforce and is kind of a, a really good zone defense. When it is overwhelmed on four different like approaches, 
that breaks the system. That is not the way accordant is supposed to work. That's not the situation that accordant is set up to deal with. So it collapses pretty quickly. Uh, and the, uh, except for on the French left flank. And it struggles and is actually pushed back by Wald Moden. And we're going we're gonna to remember his name. He's going to be a continuous player throughout here, even though he wasn't one of the big, the big muckety-muck generals. He was pretty darn important. And he's under Freytag, by the way. That's his, uh, who he answers to. However, the French center does pretty well. They push forward and they end up splitting their forces, kind of moving at the sides, trying to move down the, the line and uh, kind of you know, widen the front, also advancing forward. But this depletes the numbers. You know, they've, they've now bled a little bit of the force, and so when they do encounter some heavy resistance, it results in some fairly protracted fighting, which they were not expecting. Again, you have a force that is much larger than the other, but they're, like this particular location, uh, they, they just weren't letting go of it. They, they refused. <laughs> <laughs> and it takes its toll. And uh, we, as we had talked about before, the French army was not just low on morale and not just low on people, for the most part. Uh, you know, this levy changed things, but, you know, it's still not as much as I'm sure they would have wanted in, in the military. They're also dealing with a lack of stuff, lack of just equipment and supplies. And so they were low on ammo and thinking about kind of falling back and kind of regrouping, making sure that they reestablish a, a supply train, get the supplies up. But one of these political advisors says, we must conquer at any price. Failing cartridges, are there not bayonets? Just saying, all right, if you can't shoot, stab them. Easy enough. Yeah, easy enough for somebody who's not in the front line. But they do. And, and uh, the fighting continues. And by eight o'clock, by, uh, you know... Um, sorry, 1800 hours, everybody's tired. You know, uh, Houchard, the French commander is exhausted and they, they're looking to seek rest. They're in Bembeck at the time and they're just trying to chill out and take some rest. But this political advisor says free men are never too tired to fight the slaves of tyrants. Therefore the army should continue its movement. And so they continued the push uh, up to Rex Poede and at 2000 hours, Freytag is starting to realize that he's a little bit out of a position and that he's going to be stronger if he moves back to Honshut. And so he and Walmoden, uh, he puts the orders down and they start to reposition to Honshut. Freytag's own route takes him through Rexapoda, which by his last report was not under French control. There's a scuffle, a confused scuffle, and he is wounded. Freytag, the, one of the big commanders of, of this uh, side, is wounded and taken prisoner. While Moden, though, suspects something is wrong, something's happened to his commander, and so he attacks the same position, drives off the French uh, in confusion, and nearly captures Houchard. <laughs> so he just had this weird back and forth that just happened. And the panic that ensues here, the panic was huge for the French troops. And, and many of them apparently just, like, ran all the way back to one of the main bases of operation, like way behind the army, just booked it because of the confusion and the and the the fear that was there. They nearly captured the the commander, like the commander. That's crazy. So on the seventh of September, 
Walmoden is uh, cons- uh, kind of finished falling back to Honshut. With uh, with him, he's brought Freytag, and Freytag's kind of out of action for the rest of this because he was wounded in the the action at Rexpode. So it's uh, six hundred hours. He sets up a very effective defensive position, utilizing the canals and the hedges to make a spot where you really have to come down this gauntlet in order to access the area. However, because it is so congested in there, because it is uh, because of the tightness of the ground, it means that the cavalry are actually not going to be able to operate. And that was a significant disadvantage for Walmoden because their cavalry at the time was vastly superior to that of the French. I mean, for one thing, you had in, in, in traditions, traditions that had been there for a long time of families supporting this and a cavalry that was well-equipped, well-managed, well-fed, as opposed to the French. And if you think that the French soldiers are starving, you better believe that the horses are also probably not doing too great. And you've got riders who are likely very green. Many of the experienced riders would have been aristocrats, and many of them are dead. So, in their loo, we have green cav people on sickly horses. So, so it would have been a, a, a no contest there. But again, we're dealing with the force roughly twice the size. Getting that local numeric superiority uh, was more important, at least in Walmoden's mind here. So Houchard, at this point, attempts to continue the attack. There was a lot of momentum from the previous day, and he wants to continue the attack, but the forces are too scattered and disorganized to do so. This is an 18-mile front, and there was a lot of movement, there was a lot of chaos, various points along the line. Reaching different generals is difficult. Again, when you don't know where somebody's going to be, trying to get a message to that person is a challenge for sure. And that was kind of how they communicated, obviously. So that was a big deal. Big deal. And so that that kind of took the day, getting everybody back on the same page, getting everybody back into formation and back into their particular um, their units. And Houchard, for the ones that were paying attention, he attempts to continue the attack, but the forces are, you know, the assaults that were launched uh, are driven back. The few assaults that actually the orders fell through. Yeah, there's, there just wasn't the force. Wasn't like the, the, what the French had here, their big advantage here was numbers. And using that to, to basically swing around those numbers is you know, the absolute best way for them to attack. Small sorties, not so much. But in the process, they're bringing up fresh columns. So York is blocked from re- receiving, or is from reinforcing the, the force at Honshute by, remember, the flooded marshes how the defenders at Dunkirk had flooded the marshes and changed, like massively changed the battlefield. So much so, like in this particular case, where you have the force that really needs to be relieved, they can't because the the time that it would take to go around the marsh just is not conducive to what is necessary down there. And of course, you know, York is trying to set up for a big siege. Not exactly, he can't exactly spare the forces anyways especially for not to be in combat whatsoever. So the 7th of September is spent largely just licking wounds. You know, Walmoden has the, uh, the defenses that they're setting up. Houchard is getting his stuff together and bringing in fresh troops and, and all of the goodness that comes with that. So 
everybody is ready to go on the 8th of September. And once again, Houchard is spread across this large front. I don't understand why he wouldn't concentrate his forces. Houchard's making a lot of mistakes throughout the course of this battle. And part of them are because of the, the urging of these political advisors that are there and, and really kind of muddling things up. So he's got this large front. And in addition to that, he sends a third of his force, roughly a third of his force, to Dunkirk to reinforce. That force is needed <laughs> where it is. And then even, even the remaining force that he has, he only uses roughly half of it. A lot of the new a lot of the new columns is what he uses. He doesn't use the stuff that was already there, the, the columns that had already existed in the area, which is insane to me to throw away assets and only work with a small portion of what you have when again numbers is what wins with this particular playstyle <laughs> with this particular army. But I wasn't in charge. Houchard was. Um, but he launches a three pronged assault, kind of coming into to Honsha, to, but he's spread extremely thin. As we had talked about, he's not using many of his forces. He sent some to Dunkirk, and he's spread them out over a multiple fronts again. And he's very, it's going to be a struggle. And the other big, big issue here, like the big glaring issue, is he didn't threaten the line of retreat. If he had just done that, Walmoden would have been forced to abandon his position or risk being trapped where he was by a larger force. Would have been, he would have had to move. But Houchard did not threaten that line of retreat. I don't know why. I don't know why. That was a silly thing to not do. However, in this area, the tactics do favor the French skirmishers. Because remember, we're talking about broken ground. There's a lot of hedges, a lot of heavily kind of forested areas. And I don't know if you have been to, to France or to the Holland area or really anywhere in that area where they have massive hedges. They were also heavily featured in World War II where they were a very significant terrain feature because it is just super thick vegetation. You can't really see through it, hard to shoot through. And so the, the French were able to use their skirmishers, which they had plenty of, uh, to kind of work well in this broken ground. And their big guns were protected by the hedges which was kind of a backfire. You know, it was, it, it's a double-edged sword where Walmoden had set up. His stuff was protected by the hedges in part, but the big guns of the French were also protected by the hedges. So, uh, probably didn't work out as well as he had intended. However, as we had said, the French were, were in a silly position. <laughs> they just decided to to send away a vast majority of their forces and water it down. And so they're, they're struggling. The French center even begins to break. It looks as though uh, the, the command is going to have to scatter once again. But Houchard reinforces and leads a charge on the right, kind of coming in and, and destroying that resistance. And this forces the Allies to withdraw because the right is the area that challenges that line of retreat. And so this attack by Houchard, the strong attack by Houchard near that line makes the, the allies move out of the position. It was the only smart thing to do at that point. Uh, and they had lost roughly a third of their forces at this point and were super low on ammo. And that's part of the reason, of course, they decided to retreat. Those three things, the loss of the third of their forces, low on ammo, and the line of retreat being threatened. Um, finally. Finally. 
I don't know why he didn't do it beforehand. Um, and so York, guy who's up there sieging Dunkirk, uh, he obviously abandons his stuff and gets out of there too. His whole, the whole southern flank, the dude who's protecting him, has had to move back. So he does as well. And thus Dunkirk is saved from a siege. So if we're looking at this, we see a lot of issues here in terms of uh, military virtue. And one of the big ones is the issue with morale here, that the, because of the hardship, because of the, the suffering, that they, the, the privation, the French were in a much worse position in terms of morale coming into this. They were less disciplined as well. You know, very professional forces on the other side as com uh, compared to this new, fairly new army of conscripts. And so discipline was huge. So simple moves were favored. Any, any time that something complex was tried here, it did not work. But the hammer of everybody hit now seemed to do the trick just fine. So Houchard here, again, he made several big, big mistakes. Trying to attack too many places at once. Listening to his political advisors, because this battle really shouldn't have happened in the first place. He had a much bigger force, and if the political forces hadn't basically made him seek out this combat, he could have easily just moved around to the right, threatened the line of retreat, and made them move out of their position. It would have been easy enough, just the show of force, as we had talked about before, the, the use of non-battle conditions in order to achieve the same results as a battle would. You know, taking ground, making our opponent move away from a certain position or retreat. Uh, these things we can do without actual fighting, but just with the mere threat of fighting, with the preparation for fighting. His political advisors wouldn't let him. And he did pay for this, by the way. He was branded a traitor because he failed to be bold in the face here or whatever, and he was executed. And that was kind of the thing. If, if somebody was in a, that we're going to get a lot of that, by the way. Uh, we're going to be like, oh, there was this new general for the French forces, and he's dead. Oh, there's another one. He's dead as well. It's going to be the theme for the next, uh, <laughs> for the next little while here. Um, but yeah, he makes some classic mistakes here. He was not ready for command. He knew he wasn't ready for command, and yet he was put into this position that he was unsuited for. Of course, he was going to do... Honestly, I was, I'm surprised he did as well as he did. He won this battle. He shouldn't have, really. <laughs> but he did. And, uh, I mean, that, that definitely changed the, the approach in this area. Part of the reason that this victory was possible is, again, the Allies had split their forces with the British being like, okay, we have to do something. We have to make up for this, for our, our diehard blue strategists, or um, blue water strategists at home, and, and achieve something here at Dunkirk. And they failed to do so. Massively demoralizing, really affects the war effort on the British part. But we're going to get to that. We're going to get to all that later. Uh, not next episode, though. His next episode, we're going to be doing something a little bit special in terms of kind of the layout. The first part is going to be the same. I'm going to be talking about the text. In fact, we're going to be talking about boldness next time. And we're going to be talking about the text, kind of comparing it to what is going on in our games. Same old, same old. But the interview section is going to be a collaboration of interviews that I take while at Beltane from various folks who are either winning tournaments or doing really well on the field, hold positions of authority and have 
a perspective that I want <laughs> to give y'all, uh, that's going to be in the interview section. And then the third section, like what we're in right now, I'm going to be discussing the events and the, like the, what kind of the surrounding events were behind some of the games that take place, especially the ones that mean something for like the banner battles or whatever the equivalent is over there for the win, kind of seeing how that breaks down in terms of what I'm hearing around camp in terms of power politics, you know? So again, without talking directly about drama, I do want to touch on how that drama affects the field. If I can see it, maybe I won't. Maybe it'll be a fantastic and drama-free sort of event, and I won't have anything to remark on in that way, and I'll just be able to talk about the tactics. That would be cool, too. But I don't think that will be the case, so prepare for some power politics next time. I'm looking forward to it. Um, well, I hope this was useful. Like I said, the, this idea of military virtue is interesting. Not wholly applicable to what we do, at least not letter for letter, but I, again, I think it's something that is certainly worth considering in the way that we do our wargaming. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earworm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. Mm-hmm.